Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are starting a new book today, and the name is Whom God Has Joined, and the subtitle is Sketches from a Marriage in Which God is First. And this book is by Isabel Kuhn, with permission of OMF Internationals. And we are starting on Chapter 1, Anticipation. We met in the kitchen of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago in the year 1924. We were both students working our way through school. He had the job of running the dishwashing machine. At that important moment, I was in the line of waitresses, waiting for the hot food we would carry to the tables. It was just one minute before the bell that would set us all in motion. I was a new student, impatient to get through my training so I might be God's messenger to the Lesu tribe of the China-Burma border. As I waited, I dreamed of the mountain land. Two years more of this before I can get there. I thought with a sigh. The dishwasher had also gone into a daydream as he waited for the bell to ring. One foot on a chair, chin in a hand, he dreamed out into space, unconscious that he would be facing a line of waitresses. As I turned quickly, I found myself suddenly falling into the well of two blue eyes. Down, down I went until soul met soul and the shock brought us to. Quickly, each turned away and tried to get busy with something else. But it had happened. I did not even know his name. It was three months before we were formally introduced, yet every day I had to pass him in order to put away dishes. We never looked at each other or spoke, yet somehow I was perfectly sure that Blue Eyes had investigated me, that he knew my name and all about me. I was right. I was slower to find out about him. He had come two semesters before and knew how to make subtle inquiries. Eventually I learned he was John Kuhn, although his name didn't matter. From that moment on, he was capitalized and italicized in my thinking. Somewhat later, I discovered we were both volunteers for China and both interested in the China Inland Mission. The former introduction took place on Clark Street one evening where we gathered to go to a surprise party for Dr. Isaac Page. From then on, it was proper to converse when we met in the Moody Kitchen. The first request for a date took place when I was filling the evening teapot at the hot water urn. The CIM prefers that engagements take place after candidates are both accepted. That way, if one must be turned down for medical or other reasons, both are not lost to the missionary cause. For this reason, Dr. Page, a representative of the CIM and an intimate friend of my father's, was stern in his warnings about budding friendships. We were obedient. John graduated and sailed for China in the fall of 1926. There was not even an understanding between us. The next term, in December of 1926, I graduated. By the time I attended the CIM's candidate school in Toronto, the foreign uprisings of 1927 had begun in China, and the CIM was not able to send out any new workers for nearly two years. That is why John got to China two years before I did. After I was accepted by China Inland Mission, John the Coon's letters began to have a personal note, which meant only one thing. But I was still uncertain. I felt called to the Lesu tribe of the Yunnan province. John had been somewhat interested in the far northwest of Kansu, the opposite direction. I wrote John's sister, Catherine Coon Harrison, telling her to warn him not to propose until he had been designated. My letter crossed with one of his. Designations had taken place earlier than expected, and he was assigned to the tribes of Yunnan. Would I be his wife and go with him? He asked me to cable the answer. Light if I accepted him, dark if I refused. There was no question in my mind as to what my answer was. 
Yet, as I spread that precious letter out before the Lord, there was still a problem. John and I are very opposite dispositions, each rather strong-minded. Science has never discovered what happens when the irresistible force collides with the immovable object. Whatever would happen if they married one another? Lord, it must occur sooner or later. Are you sufficient for even that? The verse the Lord gave me was Matthew 6.33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I cabled back light, then wrote a letter suggesting that our marriage motto be God first. The cable was directed to the Shanghai headquarters, but John was living in a house some distance away and had to be sent for. When he read the word light, he was so transported with joy that getting on the streetcar to return home, he dreamily sailed right past the conductor, forgetting the small earthly matter of paying his fare. The conductor, being well rooted in the earth, gave a grunt and followed him in pursuit. The grins of fellow travelers brought John somewhat to his senses. We were married in Kunming, the capital of Yan'an province. John was stationed down the railroad line at a little town called Tuching. I was studying language in Kunming. We had planned on November the 14th, 1929, for our wedding day, but suddenly had to change it to November the 4th. The American consul had an unexpected call to leave the city and could not be present if we kept the later date. Hastily, I sent a runner to Ching to ask John if he could make the earlier day. He brought the answer himself. Our tongues flew as we discussed new arrangements until the ring was mentioned. Oh, cried the bridegroom, didn't I go and forget the wedding ring? I left it in a box in Cha-Ching. Why, in such a big city, we would be able to borrow a substitute. But we were not superstitious, so it was all right. But even that oversight was corrected. To Ying Chang, the young Chinese who was John's cook, companion, and boy, arrived the next day, the wedding ring with him. After John left, Yang Chang had been going through his drawers and found the little box. Knowing what it was, he brought it along. John had always been loud in the praises of his wonderful cook. Now the encomiums soared sky high. It never occurred to either of us to ask what he was doing going through his master's bureau drawers. The world was all rosy and everyone in it a contributor to our joy. That evening we went for a walk outside the city gate where there were stretches of rice fields and not many pedestrians. Just think, dear, I said, beaming, this time next week we will be married. Yes, answered my dearly beloved, but in such a gloomy voice that I cast a startled look. Yes, we will be married, but then there will be nothing to look forward to. Anticipation. It had tasted so sweet he was reluctant to see it slip away. Chapter 2 Getting married is not a private affair after all. China and the mission had two houses in Kaming, the providential capital of Yan'an. One was the guest house and business center which served all missionaries in the province. The other was the home of the missionary couple who supervised the work in the local church and on the other outstations established in country towns around the city. John was staying in the guest house. I was with the church workers and the hostess at each place took a keen interest in our wedding. Let us call them Mrs. A and Mrs. B. Mrs. A was the ascetic type who felt that missionaries should live with nationals and be as self-denying as possible. Mrs. B, who was in charge of the guest house, had a distinct gift for arranging her home in an attractive style and did not feel it wrong to spend a little money to maintain it. Since many of our Yanan workers lived in the mountains among the tribes where life was primitive and hard, 
She felt that on a few occasions which brought them out to civilization for medical and dental treatment, they should have a comfortable rooms and good food. Obviously, the two such dispositions would not agree. My idea of a wedding was on an occasion so sacred that we would not wish to have many onlookers. By nature, I am the solitude who does not enjoy crowds. John was my opposite in this. To him, the more people around, the more joy it gave him. However, men are usually shy on their wedding day, and he was with me and wanting only a few people present when we exchanged our vows before the Lord. It was customary for the hostess at the guest house to assume the responsibility of entertainment in place of the bride's mother, so we proceeded to confide in Mrs. B. our wish that only a select few be present. Now, in some of these Far Eastern countries, the white community does not often have reason for celebration together, so a wedding is regarded as a social affair. I had noted a particular expression pass over Mrs. B.'s face when I first intimated that we did not wish a crowd at our wedding, but she kindly repressed her own sentiments and left me none the wiser. Shopping one day, however, I was stopped by a lady of another mission. She was a sympathetic, motherly soul and gave my hand a warm squeeze. My dear, she said, I hear that you're getting married. Well, I just love weddings. You won't mind if I just slip into the back seat and look on, will you? I don't want anything to eat, you understand. This last was just added hurriedly, much to my amusement. It was obviously now that she was thinking our plan for such a small affair might have a financial reason. I could not be blunt and say, it's because I don't want half-strangers at such a sacred moment. There was nothing to do but to invite warm-hearted Mrs. X to come. So I asked Mrs. B to prepare for one more. Again, there came that quizzical smile, but nothing was said, and I went blissfully on. The next day, another lady stopped me on the street and asked to come in on that back bench at our wedding. She was also profuse in her assurance that she did not need anything to eat. I invited her, too. What else could one do? When I reported this to Mrs. B., she looked anxious. Miss Miller, she said, I do not see how you can possibly invite Mrs. X and Mrs. Z and leave out Mrs. Y. Mrs. Y is an old friend of the mission. She would never dream of giving a wedding and not inviting me, for instance. And Mrs. X is a comparatively newcomer. And if Mrs. W heard that X, Y, Z were invited and she left out, Dear me, I am sorry, but I do not know where you're going to draw the line. I do hope this wedding of yours will not cause ill feelings. After the wedding, we would be going to our station and would seldom see these people again. But Mrs. B. must continue to live among them. We saw the point, and to cut a long story short, we ended up with the inevitable. All the Westerners of Kuming were invited. This was not the end of our problems. One evening, some days before the wedding, my hostess, Mrs. A., appeared at the supper table looking rather fatigued but triumphant. I had been all day working on the Pang Gardens, getting some rooms ready for you and John to occupy for your honeymoon, she announced. There's no reason why you should spend money going across the lake when the CIMs still have a lease on that place. You have Yang Chang and his bride to cook for you, and you'll have a lovely time round among the Chinese. It sounded reasonable, and I was quite overwhelmed with her kindness in laboring so for us. I was not slow to tell Mrs. B. of this unexpected graciousness, but I was quite unprepared for Mrs. B.'s reaction. But you can't do that, she almost wailed. I've already arranged for you to rent the honeymoon cottage across the lake. It does not cost much for a week. I meant to send you meals over to you by boat. 
so you would be quite alone for all those lovely walks and the climb to the temple and the Chinese village to visit. Peng's garden and Ying Chang to cook for you? Why, he and his wife would watch everything you did, with the Peng family to aid them. A honeymoon comes only once in a lifetime. Oh, I do hope you won't feel like you have to accept just because Mrs. A spent a morning cleaning the place up. It was easy to see Mrs. B was distressed over the matter. At the same time, Mrs. A was quite taking it for granted that we were going to Peng Gardens and telling people so. John and I retired for consultation. Well, let's go to Peng Gardens, John said, since Mrs. A has gone to such trouble, and it's true we would have Yang Chang to do the cooking for us. But Mrs. B has brought out a point that we were too inexperienced to foresee for ourselves, I replied thoughtfully. If I remember rightly, you yourself have been telling me that in Chinese eyes, the chaste and high-minded newlyweds observe the greatest indifference to one another in public, and they are never to speak to one another until the first child is born. Didn't you say that? And they never call each other by their first names. The bride refers to him as the person outside the house, and the groom refers to her as the person inside the house. When we begin to live among the Chinese, we must be careful to conform to their ideas in this manner. But I certainly hope I can be at least one week when I can treat you and be treated normally. Just think how curious the Pangs and Yang Chang would be. We would be watched every moment. Well, that's true. So then we'd better decide to go across the lake. That would be ideal, as Mrs. B advised, but seeing the feeling is running rather warm between the two as to whose advice we're to take. I think the most important matter is not where to go, but how we can avoid resentment between Mrs. A and Mrs. B over the matter. After all, we'll be leaving here and seldom returning, but they must continue to live just around the corner from one another. I would prefer that they both be disgusted with us rather than anything resembling a root of bitterness spring up between them. Is it necessary to have a honeymoon at all? Can we not go right to our station? No, we can't do that. There's no night train, and we've got to spend our wedding night somewhere near here. There's no town where we can get off the train, no place to hire coolies for our luggage and your mountain share. I've already arranged for coolies to come over the mountain from Qingchang to meet our train on that day. We have to make that connection, or we'll be in a pickle for sure. Well, what can we do? We thought and thought. Is there no third place we can go for honeymoon, dear? I asked at length. You've been here for other weddings. Yes, John said. Most missionaries go across the lake to the cottage Mrs. B's talking about. But there's a French hotel, you know. Business people sometimes go there, I believe. But my, that cost. The French hotel was run on European lines by the European manager and mainly catered to the French population of Kuming. Being officials in the Salt Gabelle or other industries, they are usually well-to-do people. The arrival of mail from America brought a deciding factor. There was a letter from John's father in which he enclosed a substantial check as a wedding gift for us. Here we are, Belle, John cried, grinning and waving the important piece of slim paper. Here's enough for a week's honeymoon at the French Hotel. Good, I answered. Dear Daddy Coon, bless his heart. Mrs. B will be horrified at our extravagance, as Mrs. A, but is not misusing any money given for mission purposes. It has absolutely no tags on it. We'll let Daddy Coon give us our honeymoon, and so it was settled. The news of our decision caused both Mrs. A and Mrs. B to throw up their hands in dismay, as we had foreseen. This unexpected unity of opinion paved the way for them to do the best they could for such reckless youngsters who had yet to learn CIM economies. I always thought that our wedding was the most beautiful of any I've ever seen. We were married in the Chinese church, 
and the good ladies had transformed it. The whole looked like a long party in the woods. It was a completely happy day. As we rode off in the ricochets for the French hotel, we turned to wave to our group of friends. There were our two dear hostesses standing in unconscious union, trying to wave hopefully to us, but each dubiously shaking her head over those unmanageable and extravagant coons. Chapter 3. What Comes First Honeymoon over, we set out for our station in the town of Jingchang. Yingchang, John's serving boy, just recently married himself, had gone on ahead to get things ready for us. We traveled down on the French Railroad until about noon, when we came to the spot where we were to proceed overland. Porters to carry our things in a mountain chair for me were already waiting there for us. John chose to walk. It was a beautiful trip over high, velvety, wrinkled mountain ranges, piled up one against another to the skyline. They afforded deep glimpses into the separating valleys where quaint little hamlets lay. It had rained for many days previously, and the mountain trails were slippery. My coolies had to pick up their steps so carefully that time was lost, and the sun set before we were two-thirds of the way. For an hour and a half, we had to fill our path with constant danger of a false step and a broken bones. The last half hour, the porters dared carry me no further, so I got down. Dusk was falling, so I could not see the way plainly. With John holding one arm and a Chinese coolie the other, we slid and jumped and ran down the last slopes into the plain. Just as we reached the level, the moon came out, flooded all objects in a soft white light. On three sides towered dark, shadowy masses, the surrounding mountains. Far off on the fourth side, at the end of the plain, gleamed a silver sheet of water, a lake. I was so thrilled with the beauty that I sent a thank you through the starlit sky to the giver of every good gift. But we still had to cross the plain. A shout ahead and a lighted lanyard approached us. It was one of the Chin Chang Christians came out in search of the missing bride and groom. Courage, Belle, said my dear John to a very weary me. He said that Ying Chang had a lovely Chinese face waiting for us. Been waiting for hours as I usually get in before dark when I make this trip. So we plodded on. A length, a great wall of mud. Two huge, massive doors loomed up before us. Ching Chang City Gate, Belvedere, they close it at five o'clock. But Mr. Yang told them that we were coming and the watchman has orders to open for us. Not much further now. But I was speechless with weariness and could only stumble over the rough cobblestones of the street until we reached a certain doorway. Here we are, Belle, John called out with excitement. Welcome home, as he spoke. He stooped and picked me up and carried me over the threshold, up the stairs. This is our home. Want to see it? Oh, not tonight, dear. Just give me a bed, was all I could get out, completely exhausted and faint, as we had not eaten for many hours. Aren't you going to come down for supper? Ying Chang has cooked such a big meal. But I was at the end. Words took too much strength. I just shook my head. Bed was merely boards on a trestle with a mattress on top, but to stretch out and be still was pure luxury. Isn't there anything you can eat, inquired my bridegroom anxiously. I thought for a moment, hot soup? Yes, I've got a tin, I think. Just a minute, and he was gone. Shortly he was back with a big bowl of steaming hot tomato soup. Oh, it was good. It tasted like nectar, my first meal in our own home. The next morning I was thoroughly renewed and as keen to inspect the premises as John was to escort me around. 
I told you it wasn't much, John kept saying anxiously, and it wasn't. Two rooms over a little chapel and right on the market street. There were no windows at all, but the front and the back walls were folding doors, which could be rolled back in the daytime. If you rolled them back, you got the light, but no privacy. Anyone walking down the street could look right up and see in. If we wished for privacy, we had to shut the doors and go into semi-light of the closed wooden box. There was no electricity, of course. The Asians cannot understand the Westerners' desire for privacy. Dishonest and evil deeds need to be kept out of sight. But why anything else? What would you contemplate doing that the public should not view it? An upper back veranda, at the head of which a native stove had been built, was the kitchen. In the side wing of the house were two small dark rooms where Ying Chang and his bride lived. The house was owned by Chinese Muslims who lived in the back wing. To do our laundry, we had to take our zinc tubs and clothes and go through the Muslims' home to the back garden, where there was a well. After washing, our clothes had to be hung on our own upper and side verandas. Anything that was not securely fastened and which happened to blow down over the railing was seized by those below as their lawful prey. I saw them using a handkerchief for talavars from time to time, so I was able to guess where the wind had blown our missing things. But I was not dismayed at our poor quarters. I knew the CIM sent their missionaries to live right among the people, and I was prepared for anything. I did not mind living in the humble place for the Lord's sake, but I saw no reason why I should not make it as attractive as possible. I had come prepared with enamel paint and fabric. Mr. Host, our general director, had said something about this in my first personal interview with him. I had not understood what made him say it, but he said, Miss Miller, if I had a beautiful bedspread, I would throw it in the river. I was quite startled. Did he have x-ray eyes? I did have a beautiful quilt in my boxes, a wedding gift from a girlfriend. However, did Mr. Host know that? And if he did, why should he object? I murmured politely. Is that so? or some such filler in, but inwardly I'd answered, well, I'm not throwing my quilt into the river. It was a lovely thing and would trim up a shack very nicely. The windowless wooden upstairs was an agreeable challenge. With wedding gift money, we had bought some pretty rattan furniture. As a bachelor, John had lived on backless benches, but now we had a small settee, a couple of chairs, a table, and a rattan rug, all in natural tones. The uneven warped floorboards disappeared under the rug. In one corner, I had put my big trunk. There was no other place to put it. But I had a pretty green crimson traveling rug, which I pinned over it as a cover. John's table slash desk, off which we ate, was in another corner, and soon the dull room had blossomed into a nice living room. When the bedroom had been fixed up in blue and white, the place was really transformed. So began our life among the country Chinese people. There was already a small church in Qingcheng, and John introduced me there. I was proud of his fluent Chinese and glad that one of us at least could speak and understand. Truly, we were living right among the people. We had come for them, and they were not long in coming to us. Visitors, Bell, John called out one afternoon, and a busy chatter of voices ascending the stairs brought me running. A group of peasant women who had come to the market were to be my first lot of guests. I welcomed them with delight and showed them into our pretty brown and green sitting room. They admired it very much, and I was glad to share it with them, or thought I was. After they were seated, I began to explain the gospel message, as much as my one year and four months of language study allowed. I was thrilled to see that they understood me. We were getting along fine when all of a sudden 
an oldish woman who was sitting on my big trunk in the corner, blew her nose with her fingers and wiped the stuff off on my beautiful traveling rug. In another minute, a young mother laughed as she held her baby son out over my new rattan rug. She carried him to the door, but as she went, she carefully held him out over the rug so that a wet streak ran down the center of my cherished floor covering. Since their own floors were of dirt, my visitor had no idea she was doing anything offensive to me. That was just their custom. Outwardly, I managed to remain courteous. I escorted them to the door when they rose to leave, and in time-honored Chinese fashion begged them to go slowly and come again. Then I returned to my sitting room and stood looking at it. That disgusting glob on my traveling rug and the discolored streak across the beautiful new mat. Hot resentment rose in my heart, and there followed my first battle over things. Suddenly I understood what Mr. Host had meant. Miss Miller, if I had a beautiful bedspread, I would throw it into the river. He did not mean that he did not like beautiful things. He meant that if possessions would in any way interfere with our hospitality, it would be better to consign them to the river. In other words, if your finery hinders your testimony, throw it out. In our Lord's own words, if thine hand offend thee, cut it off. He was not against our possessing hands, but against our using them to hold onto sinful or hindering things. So I faced my choices. What was to come first in our first home, an attractive sitting room just for ourselves, or a room suited to share with the local Chinese? Our engagement motto hung silently on the wall, God first. Mentally, I offered that pretty rattan furniture to the Lord to be wrecked by the country peasants if they chose. The day was not far off when we were called to leave Chancheng and move west to Tali. Then I had an opportunity to begin anew. I sold that rug and the rattan furniture to the Chinese postmaster's wife, and our Tali guest hall was plainly furnished with the local wooden lacquer chairs and tea tables, which could easily be washed and were such as all the Chinese had. Next time we will do Chapter 4, How to Develop a Taste for Bean Curd. Just a reminder that we are going to be only reading once a week, but it will be for 30 minutes or about 30 minutes. I love you. I'm praying for you, and I pray that the Lord blesses you. And just please keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Bye-bye for now.